for those of you that may not know who I am, my name's Mig. I'm youth pastor here, uh, and it's my joy and privilege to serve the church working amongst children and young people at Creech Baptist Church. And uh, just while I'm on, just one quick notice that uh, didn't make it into the other details earlier on. Most of the young people will know um, that we've already had one prayer session um, during this uh this prayer festival month already but this coming Tuesday at two o'clock we're going to be meeting together online and as part of our regular chats we're going to spend an hour of that in prayer so um, young people if you've not been um, to any of the sessions before do come and join us we're trying to make this easy for one another and to learn to pray together and to engage with God at this time so uh, that's two o'clock on Tuesday afternoon and there will be a link to the meeting coming out um, in the next couple of days so keep your eyes out for that so but um, I wonder how you're feeling about yourself this morning are you feeling good uh, I'm just hoping that the technicals hold up for the the next few minutes um, while I share something uh, of God's word with you this morning so um, but I wonder this morning what achievements are you most proud of are the things that you've accomplished uh, that give you a sense of pride and satisfaction Maybe you do well in business. Have you climbed the corporate ladder? Have you established your career? Have you achieved financial stability and security? Have you got a lovely home or a lovely partner or a lovely family? Do other people look at you with respect? Maybe you're established in the church. Are you leading God's people in some way? Do you have the respect of your peers? Do other people look to you for wisdom and insight and direction? Or maybe you're one of those people that don't feel that you've ever really accomplished much. Maybe you look around at others and you feel like you've never really done anything. It leaves you feeling a bit useless. Somehow like you've let yourself down a little bit, that you could have done more. Does it seem to you maybe that you don't have much to offer? Does it feel like everyone else copes better than you? Does everybody else seem more gifted, more able, more qualified? I don't know. Maybe that's you this morning. I was reflecting this week again on, on those young people who've been able to prove themselves this year. Those who've had the not had the chance to sit their GCSEs or their A-levels. Now, I know when I was at school, if they told me that all my end-of-year exams had been cancelled, I would have been delighted. But that's not the case for everybody. What about those that feel differently? What about them? What about those where all that hard work and effort that's been put into their academic development for years and years, now there's no opportunity to sit that final exam and to really shine, to show what you can do. Some of those young people I know are really feeling robbed of the opportunity to achieve. And there's others that have lost some of their sense of purpose because they can't work, can't produce, can't deliver at this time. And it's affecting their sense of worth and identity. But, you know, if you fit into one of those kind of categories this morning, the Bible's got a lot to warn us about each of those situations. Firstly, about not letting our achievements go to our heads. The Bible says don't get fluffed up with all of the things that you think you can do. But there's other parts of the scriptures that tell us 
not to let our hiddenness make us feel like we're insignificant to God. God himself actually says to us, sometimes it's me that's chosen to hide you at this season. But for others amongst us, it's about not letting barriers and obstacles make us feel like that's the end of the story. You know, Paul starts this passage, as as Matt started our service off by saying, with a key, an antidote, if you will, to these extremes of our experience. And the antidote, Paul says, is this, rejoice, rejoice in the Lord. That is, make the Lord your focus and your goal. Don't let your successes go to your head or make you complacent. We all know success can disappear overnight. You know, one of the tragedies of this lockdown around the world has been the impact on small businesses and recent startups that have just begun with such promise, but have collapsed as the markets have shut down. But conversely, don't allow barriers or failures to rob you of what God wants to do in you and with you. It's not over until he says it is. And there are many stories throughout history of peoples, individuals, organisations, um, even churches for whom it looked like it was all over. But God was still at work and he turned it around. Jesus taught his followers a really important uh, life lesson in Matthew six thirty-four when he talked about them not worrying about tomorrow. And the really important lesson in this is not that we shouldn't worry because worrying is a bad thing to do. The important lesson is the fact that worrying is pointless because we don't know what a day may bring forth. In God's economy, celebration and rejoicing can turn to tragedy, and yet tragedy still become victory in the space of just a few days. Think about that plan of salvation. So rejoicing in the security of what we have, or despairing over what we feel we lack, is also pointless because circumstances or God can bring a change to both overnight. So the issue is this, when we make our circumstances the focus of our happiness or of our despair, we become slaves to those circumstances that might change on a whim. But when we choose to focus our joy in the Lord, to rejoice in him, we focus it on someone who doesn't change like shifting shadows, as the scripture says, but who's able to hold us because he holds the whole of our future. Let's take a little time just to think about what really matters and what matters to Paul and what he's trying to convey in this passage today. In effect, What makes a man significant or successful in Paul's worldview? I was looking at some definitions of of how you measure someone's success. What's the measure of a man? And Plato said the true measure of a man is what he does with power. How he handles power. Martin Luther King Jr. said, The measure of a man is not where he stands in moments of comfort and convenience, but where he stands at times of challenge and controversy. And Samuel Johnson said, The true measure of a man is how he treats someone who can do him absolutely no good. Which are all great sentiments, aren't they? And they're all true in their own way. But if I were to sum up what Paul is saying here to the Philippians, is 
it's this. It's that the true measure of a man is not how much he believes in himself or doubts in himself, but how much he trusts in his Saviour. So Paul challenges those Jews who've been disrupting the church and persuading them that they need to follow Jewish legal practice as well as following Jesus. And he does a bit of spiritual accountancy to illustrate his point. Now, um, most of you will know that know me. I am not an accountant. And I know that some of you are. So forgive me if I'm severely oversimplifying what I'm about to say. But I did do a little bit of bookkeeping um, as, as part of a BTEC national years ago. Or like you accountants can stop laughing at that level. Um, but my understanding is that one of the ways of measuring where you stand in a business is, is to make a profit and loss account. And in the one column, the profit column, you list all the items that you've sold and the income that you've received. And on the other side, you list all your operational costs and your overheads and your salaries and your other expenses. And if the profit column is higher than the loss column, you're in profit and your business is broadly doing okay, in reasonably good standing. And what Paul does here with the Philippians is he starts off listing all the things that these Judaizing Christians think should go in the profit column. And he compares them to himself. And I I don't know whether you'll be able to see that or, or read that or not, but I did myself a little profit and loss account here. Can you see that? Um, and he starts off on this side and he says, so you guys, you've encountered Jesus. Brilliant. Brilliant. Me too. So you guys think that being Jewish counts. Um, yep. I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. Born to Hebrews. Um, what about the covenant? Keeper of the covenant. Circumcised as a Hebrew on the eighth day like the law demands. I belong to the people. Yep, I'm one of the 12 tribes, part of the tribe of Benjamin. I can trace my lineage all the way back. Keeps the Mosaic law. I'm a Pharisee, part of the strictest sect of law keepers going. I do things with God that even most Jews don't bother with. Zealous for God. I even hunted down those I thought were blasphemers and had them killed or imprisoned. Sacrifice and offering, I was legally faultless, tithed everything, never missed a beat, ceremonially clean from head to toe. But now let me show you something. Let, let's take all this stuff here and let's move it over here. Yeah. So Jesus is on the profit side and all this other earthly stuff over here, that goes on the loss side. Now, Jesus is here. He's worth more than all this other stuff here. So you see, in God's economy, the only thing that matters is that Jesus is in my profit column. If he's crediting me, I don't need anything else. He's worth so much more than anything else I can achieve. That as long as I have him, I don't need anything else. So this side is greater than this side. Nothing else matters. It doesn't matter what's in my lost column. If I've got Jesus in my profit column, I end up doing okay. I'm doing well. The really important thing for us is, is this. In a way, I want to... To think about for a few minutes you see what paul is saying isn't that all this other stuff all of this good stuff 
all of this right living, all this righteousness is wrong. He's not saying that being born into a privileged position is wrong or that achieving success is wrong or that working hard and getting good qualifications is wrong or that using your gifting and trying to be your best is wrong. What he's saying is that none of it really counts if we don't have Jesus. But if we do have Jesus, even if we don't have any of this other stuff, the trappings of success, none of that matters. Christ really is our all in all and all we need. So all this other stuff and the things that the world sees as positive and successful can all be taken away from us. It can all be in that lost column. And we're still the richest, most powerful, most successful people on the planet because we have life in him. And because of this, Paul says he can go on to treat everything else, everything that the world thinks of as profit, as loss. But more than just loss, you can actually consider it all rubbish. Skybalos in the Greek. What a fabulous word, skybalos. Carries a variety of meanings. None of them are particularly pleasant. So it means the kind of stuff that you throw away. It's the mouldy bit of cheese that you found in the back of the top shelf of the fridge a month into lockdown. It's the contents of your food waste bin. It's the blood-soaked wrapper off your Sunday roast. Or even the dog mess that you wipe off your shoe. All of those meanings are part of it. It's nasty. It's no good for anything. He does a similar thing in his letter to the Romans when he nods in the direction of Isaiah 64. Um, when he's talking about our righteousness and what we do to try and earn a good standing with God. And he says that all of our best behavior, all of the best things that we try and do, it's about as useful as keeping us clean in God's economy as a used tampax. Did I just <laughs> say that? Um, right. Sorry, I, I would probably have, have, have toned that one down, but like most of our, our Bible translations do. But literally, that's what he means. Never mind that, we can discuss my future as youth pastor after lockdown um, uh, in a little while. It's true, though, look it up. That kind of extreme language is what Paul talks about. I think the Hebrew for that word is actually idda. So if you want to check me on that one, look it up. But the Bible uses this kind of extreme language to understand the contrast between what's good in God's eyes and and what's good in the eyes of man and the two things very rarely kind of match up the important thing for us is not the good deeds and righteous acts and service and success don't matter it's just that we don't need them to be significant in god's kingdom having them doesn't add anything to our standing or our value before god if we have christ i think that's particularly important for us in the west and maybe particularly important for us even in the Western Church, because so much of our sense of self-worth comes from how we measure up to others and how productive or creative we are. I'm sure you've seen this yourself, but you know, when two Western men meet, the first question they'll usually ask after exchanging names is, what do you do for a living? It's a way of checking each other out and figuring out how significant this person is uh, and where we might sit with them in the social hierarchy. So, for example, if I meet a doctor or a barrister or a government minister or a guy who owns his own profitable tech company, I might think, yeah, 
okay, this guy's significant. But if I find out he's a janitor or a, uh, a building site labourer or maybe a house husband, which is something I've always wanted to be, I would say, you know, he might feel a little bit less significant to me. It's not just us guys, though, is it, really? Girls, you do this kind of thing as well, too, but you kind of do it the other way around, I often think. So you girls meet Supermom, who does a full-time job that carries responsibility, and yet she still manages to raise her kids brilliantly and helps them with all the whole homeschooling and keeps the house clean and tidy and cooks healthy meals and still finds time to go to the gym and look after her appearance. And you feel like you're less because you can't do all that stuff at the same time. But maybe you feel you should. Or maybe you know someone who wishes a husband was just a bit more ambitious or who had a better job, not so much for the financial rewards that that brings, but just because you quite like to move in those higher circles. You see, lots of the world is seeking validation. We're desperate to know that we matter and that we make a difference. But the truth is that the things that we aspire to and the things that we look to to give us a sense of significance rarely matter much at all in God's eyes. It'd be like a brilliant surgeon rejoicing in another successful operation, boasting to God about what he's just achieved by the skill of his hands and father going, well done, son. Now let me explain to you how I made him from the dust. Or the cosmologist is there searching out new stars and studying, um, uh, looking for new planets. While God goes, you know, one day I'll show you some really cool stuff I've hidden on the other side of the universe. I've named it all too. But I mentioned earlier how I think this kind of unwitting mindset causes problems in the church, because I think it does. You see, there's a danger in the way that we view our place in church, in the same way that we view our place in the world. When we do that, we end up turning something that's intended to be a whole body ministry and a priesthood of all believers into a hierarchy that elevates roles like preaching and worship leading and the top of the structure and roles like putting out the chairs or facilitating crash come somewhere down lower on the pecking order. And the problem with that, of course, is that if everyone in your congregation is a preacher or a worship leader, then no one ever sets out the chairs or looks after the kids. Like I said last time I spoke, we're not all meant to be the same. We're meant to complement each other and partner together in the gospel. But there's another problem with viewing the church in this kind of way, all from gaining our significance from our position in it, and it's this, that I end up looking for promotion in the structure. And my personal need ends up being the motivation for my ministry. So instead of my ministry being about serving the needs of others, I minister because it makes me feel good about myself. And that's where all kinds of division springs up, because individuals end up jostling for power and control. And that's a surefire way to destroy a church. So I encourage you and I encourage us all, let, let's check our motives often, ask ourselves hard questions and ruthless questions about our motives. And especially if we see somebody else making a pig's ear of something that we think we could do better. If you're part of the church, seek to serve. And at the end of the day, if no one wants your input or help, 
then let it go. Count it all lost, like Paul said, compared to the surpassing greatness of just knowing Christ Jesus as Lord. Lay it all down in that lost column and seek to know him better. For Paul, that's the real goal in life, to know Christ. Not just to know about him, but to know him. You see, knowing Christ is not just knowing what he said or what he did or where he walked or knowing all the stories about him. It's not even knowing good theology or grasping deep truths and concepts about him. All of these things are good and they help us get to know him better. But getting to know someone is not just about getting to know about them or the facts that make up their lives. We're not biographers trying to write the truth of someone's life. We're friends. Friends. Seeking out a deeper, more personal, more intimate relationship with the best friend that we've ever had. It's about a relationship that is that, both deep and personal. Jesus said himself, this is what eternal life is. This is what eternal life is, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. This is eternal life, John 17, verse 3. It's about undoing all of the consequences of the fall and the chance to walk again with God in the cool of the evening, naked and unashamed before our Creator, knowing Him intimately, even as we're intimately known. And that's what's so great about this prayer festival, our month of prayer for June. It's a chance not just to engage in spiritual activity, it's a chance to engage with our Lord and Saviour. It's said that the way to really get to know someone is to spend some time talking with them, listening to them, sharing thoughts with them. And this month gives us the time to focus and do just that. There'll be lots of opportunity for you to spend time listening to Jesus, waiting on Jesus, engaging with Jesus, both as individuals and as groups. And the, the website will be feeding you all kinds of ideas about how you might do that. But you know, there's something else. It's only said... It said that you only truly know someone, you only truly know someone when you get to live with them. And that's the wonder and the beauty of the gift of the Holy Spirit to us. While we live, it's not possible for us to be where God dwells in the heavens, but God the Father and God the Son knew that, and they sent God the Holy Spirit, poured out into our hearts to give us another counsellor, one like the first one who is the Spirit of Jesus and who knows the mind of Christ, who guides us into all truth and who teaches us all things about the Lord. God himself comes to live with us and be in us. So let's be those that weigh up what we've got, who put all of the stuff that doesn't matter in that lost column. That's not an easy thing to do and can take a lifetime of practice to begin to achieve. Even Paul himself admitted that, didn't he, at the end of that passage. It was a tough one to nail. His letter to the Philippian church says, even I've not managed to attain all this yet. But he determined that this goal was worth pursuing, and that what was ahead of him, he was going to press onto and into the fullness of knowing Jesus.
So let's us do likewise, and particularly in this season, let's take stock of life and remind ourselves that the only thing that really counts is eternal life. And that kind of life is found in seeking to know Jesus more. That kind of life, eternal life, is found in seeking to know Jesus more. I'm just going to pause and pray for a minute. Let's just bow our heads and invite Jesus into this moment. So Lord, we want to thank you for the gift of your spirit to us, in us. Thank you, Lord, that you came to live with us and be in us so that we might know you better. Lord, we thank you for all that we can learn from the scriptures and the way that we can know you. Thank you for all that we can learn by looking at history and the way that you have lived. Saints will unfold. But thank you, Lord, that you've come to live in each of us now. And whether we feel like we've achieved much or whether we feel a bit useless, whether we feel significant and have a sense of purpose or, Lord, whether we feel that we don't matter. If we have you, we have everything. Lord, unless we have you, we have nothing. So, Lord, in this season, in this time, may we come to you again, seek you out, seek to know you better. And, Lord, as we give you our time, our hearts, our minds, our strength, our energy. Lord, will you make yourself more known to us. And Lord, may we become more like you. Amen. Now, maybe you're not quite sure that you understand how you can know Jesus intimately. Maybe you don't quite figure out how you start a conversation with somebody that you can't actually physically see or hear. Can I encourage you to contact us? Be in touch with the church if that's you. Lots of us will be only too happy to explain how to encounter Jesus for yourself. And as Matt's already mentioned, we'll be starting an online Alpha course soon, which will help you to explore and answer all the questions that you may have or that you've ever wanted to ask about Jesus and who he is and how you start a relationship with him. Sign up online. It's all totally free. And we'd love you to join us.